I'm Stephen Metcalf, and this is the Slate Culture Gap Fest Ninja Turtle dot 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 masterpiece edition. It's Wednesday, August 16th, 2023. On today's show, the new Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtle movie, Mutant Mayhem, is a critical darling. Another question mark, question mark, question mark. Wait, what? So we decided to go check it out. Critics do seem to really like it. And then Serial Productions returns with a new podcast. The Retrievals is a case study of how the medical and legal establishments discount women's pain. And finally, Hip Hop has turned 50. We discuss a tour de force essay on its anniversary with the author of the essay and a good friend of the program, Wesley Morris of the New York Times. Joining me today is Julia Turner of the LA Times. Hey, Julia. Hello, hello. And of course, Dana Stevens, the film critic for Slate. Hey, Dana. Hello, Steven. All right, let's dive in. Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles. They are turtles who, thanks to some glowing ooze from a sciencey thing gone horribly wrong, are now four anthropomorphic superheroes. This is some crazy IP that's been around for decades now. It's been taken off the shelf and given new creative life by the director Jeff Rowe and a writing team headed by Seth Rogen and some very clever animators, I should say. It has a Spider-Verse-like cartoon vibe to it in which the Turtle Boys fight a mutant superfly voiced by Ice Cube. But really, really, it is really a movie... (laughs) Believe me, it really is about belonging, acceptance, and love. Uh, in the clip we're about to hear, the turtles are going out to get groceries for their mutant rat father, Splinter, and they're trying to just make it a little more exciting than it is. Let's listen. Master Splinter has given us a very important mission for tonight. The target is across the street. We must use stealth and cunning to infiltrate the human world and retrieve Gogurt. Okay, Batman. Dude, what? I'm just trying to hype you guys up, okay? that list. Okay, what else are we getting? Four quarts of non-fat milk, nice. ice cream, yeah. fruits and veggies, no. and no. a party-sized bag of Cool Ranch Doritos. Yeah, I like cheese yeah. puffs. He was very specific about the party size. He underlined it twice. All right, Donnie, you're on toiletries. Raph, you're stocking up the pantry. And Mikey, you're on junk yes, food. Sirsky. And remember, don't let any human see you. Because why? Humans, Humans are, are the, the demon scum of the earth. Avoid them. Don't, don't say hi. They lust to murder that which, which is different from them. To interact with them is to die. die. And hey, I know that's objectively prejudiced, but that's what dad taught us. All right, Dana, let me start with you. Many respected film critics, including Justin Chang of the LA Times, really liked this movie. And that, in part, is what motivated us to go. What do you esteem film critic make of this uh this picture i enjoyed this movie and i appreciate the world that it comes from which to me feels like a descendant in some way of the phil lord chris miller lego movie mitchell's and the machines kind of universe which in fact makes sense because jeff rowe the director was one of the co-writers on mitchell's versus the machines and is kind of a protege i think of phil lord and chris miller and there's that whole world of you know self-aware but also kid-friendly and smart sweet animated movies um, that take a known property like Legos or the Ninja Turtles and try to reinvent them in a fresh way for kids and parents of this generation. And I think this movie does that successfully. The fact I have so little relationship to the property 
and quite frankly, that it's like such a dude world <laughs> make me a little bit, um, I wouldn't quite say I'm at Justin Chang's level of coming out pumping my fist that everybody needs to go see this, which I did feel, for example, about the Lego movie and to a lesser degree about the Mitchells versus the Machines. But it's a very sweet, endearing universe they create. It looks really cool. We should talk about the animation a bit and what it, it looks like. But I really appreciate that it, this is not the clean 3D Pixar animated CGI look that we're all so used to now of sort of clean, big-eyed, round creatures walking around clean universes. This is a very dirty universe. The turtles live in a sewer with their adoptive father who is a rat, and everything is kind of grungy and hairy and scratchy and sort of in between flat and 3D animation. It looks really cool, and I appreciate that adventurousness. But except for Jackie Chan, who voices their father, the the rat named Splinter, there wasn't really a character or a performance that I specifically connected with a lot in this movie. Mm, Julia, what about you? I thoroughly enjoyed this, and it has... I think the clearest way I have to read this is like excitement about the way in which the Spider-Verse movies are pushing animation forward so that you just get to look at something that looks like this. Like the animation style is really cool and novel in this. I don't actually think that it is used as precisely as an emotional like conjuring rod as it is in in the spider-verse movies like they it's just a cool aesthetic and the cool aesthetic is pretty consistent through the film um i don't think it's quite as much of the like emotional palette of the movie is based on the aesthetic but just to describe it it's animated but in this kind of messy 3d way that sort of looks like almost like a claymation style but then there are kind of extra textual scribbles and rays emanating from people. And then they also, you know, the world, as many films do, talks about the pain of being a mutant in a human world that doesn't understand you, uh, a timeless theme. And the the humans are all drawn with asymmetrical faces. Anyway, the aesthetics are just consistent, beautiful, interesting, and different from what Pixar has been moving toward for 20 years. Um, but I sort of felt like, oh, yay, Hollywood's gotten quite sophisticated at making solid entertainment out of weird IP. And, and Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles has, I think, always had a sense of humor about the weirdness of itself. Like the ridiculosity of the premise has always been part of the conceit. I don't have much more experience with Ninja Turtles than you do, Dana, but I did, I think, watch the cartoons when I was a kid a little bit. And like the whole phrase, their rat dad splinter, like that's just baked into like that sense of self-aware. Um, this is goofy is baked into the franchise, I think, in a way that that the film plays with nicely. So I, I really enjoyed it. it. It made me, I don't think it was a masterpiece, question mark, but I do think it was very good. Right. I mean... We live in an A or an F world, it seems like these days, a kind of, you know, boom or bust quality to so much stuff. And to the point you forget what it feels like to go to a movie, be thoroughly entertained, laugh, you know, okay, not cry, but there were several moments when the entire audience that I saw it with said, ah, simultaneously. And I was one of them. And 
you know, you slap a B plus on it and move on, right? Like it kind of scaled itself to itself, right? Which is exactly what the challenge of being a teenage boy is in some sense. Like the 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 kind of wild swings between grandiosity and self-annihilation that is the inner life of a teenage boy, which is what this movie's kind of about. Um, then learning to kind of see and be yourself in reasonable terms, assimilated into the world. I thought that was really, really nicely done. Um, I mean, Pixar taught, I think, everyone the lesson that the way to make animation work is to make it, you know, paradoxically human, plausibly human. Um, and at that moment, if you if you hit that early on and succeed, you can take people all kinds of very fanciful places. And in this one, I think they did a really good job of creating this parent figure, the surrogate parent figure, the mutant rat, whose overwhelming message to, because of his persecution, his overwhelming message to his adoptive children is the world's a fucked up place, don't trifle with it. And it got that attitude of the massively overprotective parent, I think, kind of right in the sense that very often that parent's not wrong. They're both speaking to something that's true about their own experience and about the world, but it doesn't matter that they're right to that extent because it's still oversheltering, still massively damages a kid through overcompensation. And so Dana, I thought it kind of wasn't a masterpiece, but I thought that was somehow appropriate to the subject matter and approach of the film. And there was something true and honorable about the effort therein. Yeah, I think that that says it pretty well what you were saying like there's there's nothing wrong with a B plus especially for a movie for parents to see with their kids. I kind of walked out of this saying, you know, I may not be pumping my fist, but I am happy that family film is at a place where a movie like this could be released and it could be just a a normal good movie that's a, that's on screens for a few months for families to see together. And I think that's due to, you know, both the Phil Lord, Chris Miller kind of influence that I mentioned and the Spider-Verse animation, you know, that this is more interesting and tries to do more different things and has a more unique voice than you might have expected. And I'm glad that you came back to The Rat because I really was so, so joyous to hear Jackie Chan do voice acting. Yes. Yes. Boys, where have you been? I've been freaking we're, out. We're sorry, Dad. Oh, yeah. It was this one. Um, two, it was this cat, the, and you know I'm scared sidewalk? of cats. So yeah, uh, yeah we did have Wait to Wait a second. Cat. You said you would go shopping, then come right back. Where were you? Right. I mean, if there's one person that you think of as acting with their body, you know, you don't think that Jackie Chan is somebody who you want to just hear his voice and not see him move. Um, and of course, his character does all sorts of martial arts things when the climax comes around, but he's just working with his voice and he gets so much into that character. I absolutely love the dad rat voiced by Jackie Chan. Yeah. I mean, that was one of the things that made me appreciate how this movie represents the ways in which we've like brought B plusdom forward as a culture. Like I agree that it's a B plus and a B plus to be celebrated, but like the notion that in making that entertainment these days, you, you are going for an innovative animation style. You've got you know, kind of humane and non-objectionable moral lessons that are pretty smart. You've got a fun array of characters. You've got Paul Rudd doing Andy Samberg um, and you've got Jackie Chan hired as a voice actor and doing an amazing job. And and you sort of at first you hear it and you get the joke of like, oh, right, it's Splinter. They're like martial arts guru dad. I get it. And then you're like, what a moving performance. I'm like so tearful when Splinter 
has a big realization at the end. Like it just, it's, it's not how Hollywood would have made this kind of movie 10 years ago. And it's so great. It's, it's to be celebrated, I think. All right. Well, the movie is Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles, Mutant Mayhem. It's out in theaters now. I, I will proselytize one more time for seeing things in a theater. I think this one works really well with the live audience, as most movies do. Check it out. Let us know what you thought. All right. Let's, uh, let's move on. All right. Before we go any further, this is typically in our podcast where we discuss business. Dana, what do we have? Steve, our only item of business is to tell listeners about our Slate Plus segment this week. This week, we are going to talk about our first personal experiences with hip-hop or rap music, how it entered our lives. Uh, one of our segments this week, one of our main segments, will be talking with the New York Times critic and longtime friend of our show, Wesley Morris, about a beautiful piece that he just wrote about hip-hop's 50th anniversary. And in honor of that conversation and as an extension of it, we're just going to go around and each of the three of us, Julia, Steve, and I, are going to talk about our earliest memories of hearing, owning, listening to rap music. If you're a Slate Plus member, you will hear that at the end of this show. And if you're not, of course, you can become one by signing up at slate.com slash culture plus. When you have a Slate Plus membership, you get ad-free podcasts, you get bonus segments like the one I just described, and best of all, you get unlimited access to all of the writing on Slate. You will never hit a paywall when you're a Slate Plus member, and best of all, you will be supporting the magazine and helping to keep things like this show and many other great podcasts going. These memberships make a big difference for Slate, so please sign up today at slate.com slash culture plus. Once again, that's slate.com slash culture plus. Okay, Steve, back to the show. An inordinate number of women at the Yale Fertility Clinic in New Haven doing IVF, undergoing egg retrieval as part of that process, reported feeling immense amounts of pain. Nonetheless, they were routinely ignored, poo-pooed, condescended to, only to find out later that the fentanyl that they were supposedly being given for pain management had been replaced by a saline solution. The drug itself was being stolen by a staff nurse. The podcast, The Retrievals, comes from serial productions in the New York Times. It deals with the women's pain from multiple perspectives. The depth of it in itself is physical pain, but also how it related to their yearning to bear a child. Um, and as much as anything about how stupid they were made to feel by a medical establishment that shamed them when they felt it. In the clip we're about to hear, you're going to hear multiple patients talking about the procedures themselves, how incredibly painful they were, and their sense that the pain medication wasn't working. Let's listen. I remember yelling or kind of making like, ah, and, and really like looking in confusion at my nurse, the attending nurse, and her saying, you know, I'm giving you the most I can legally give you. She said that that's the maximum that she's allowed to give me, so she couldn't give me anything else. I'm almost certain that at one point they said that they had given me all of the pain medication that they could give me. At one point they did say that I had maxed out. I couldn't have any more fentanyl or Versat. And I was like, how is this possible? How like, is that even, like, how am I feeling this? How do people go through this? I can feel that. Like, I could feel the, I don't even know how to describe that. Like, you can just feel them inside of there. You know, as a woman, we've all been through things, you know, with those kind of doctors and stuff. But, like, this is just a pain. It's, like, hard to even explain what it felt like. Julia, let me start with you. I mean, there are many, many extraordinary things about this podcast, not the least of which is how self-aware, intelligent, articulate, uh, what extraordinary witnesses these women are themselves. 
What'd you make of this? This is such a great show. It feels like it's been a minute since a narrative podcast story has grabbed people by the lapels and caused everyone to listen to something similar at once. And I'm not sure if this show, which is intimate in its subject and its approach, is is uh, necessarily achieving the kind of potboiler heights of serial podcast blockbusterdom, but it shows what the medium can do in terms of using voice to make people's experience real. And the choices made by Susan Burton, the host, and by the producers in what to listen to, what to pay attention to, and how to elucidate that story are so smart and so valuable. And, you know, still women's experience of our medical system is underexplored, understudied, undervalued, and in many ways they are undercared for and we are undercared for and receive insufficient care and to and to listen to this story about women's reproductive experiences also in this moment uh where Roe has been overturned is part of what makes it powerful. I don't think abortion rights are mentioned in the show at all, actually. But the context of the respect that we do and don't give women and their medical and reproductive experiences to me deepens the the resonance of the show and the power of it and the impact of it. Yeah, you know, Julia, when I heard people talking about this podcast and and you know how it was grabbing them in a way that a narrative podcast hadn't in a long time, I admit that knowing this story, having heard the story, of, you know, read the story separately about the, the nurse replacing the the fentanyl with saline, and you know, the, and reading about this as a criminal story, basically, I had sort of thought, well, is there really a whole season's worth of podcasting in that, right? And I I stand completely corrected, having listened to now three quarters of this season and wishing that there was more than just one more episode left to listen to. Uh, there's so much here. There's the legal story. You know, it is, in fact, a, a trial narrative about this specific woman, the nurse who, who stole the fentanyl, you know, why she did so, her own history of addiction and family problems. Uh, in tandem with the story that we've been talking about up to now, which is, you know, the story of women's pain being systematically ignored by this clinic, even as hundreds of women had this happen to them, right? So you're going to have to assume that there was this sudden tidal wave of complaints about pain during surgery, something that presumably had not been happening up until then. And yet there was still enough pre-existing bias in that system that all of that tidal wave of complaints could be ignored. So that's all very startling. And then the sort of moral gradations of the story, which is something that I think podcasts are really, really well suited to deal with in a way that, you know, maybe journalistic reporting isn't, where you hear one person's perspective and sort of think, oh, I've understood it from that point of view. But then, boom, it turns out that, you know, one of the women who underwent this unmedicated procedure is an addiction counselor in her life. So she has maybe a different attitude and maybe less of a sense of a desire for punishment uh, than some of the other women who who haven't worked inside that system of addiction. Uh, Another woman works in a mental hospital and at first feels more sympathy toward the nurse than some of the other victims. But 
changes her mind when she learns some, I won't give it all away because this all comes in spoiler form in the, in the podcast, but, you know, she comes across some information about the nurse's real life that makes her less sympathetic. So there's this kind of constant recalibration of how to feel about uh, both sides of this story that make it much, much more complex than I would have thought going in. Yeah, here, here. You you highlighted a bunch of things that really struck me about it. I mean, the power of the witness of these particular women, given their life experiences and their careers. I mean, one is a public defender. Uh, one is uh, several are medicine or science adjacent. Um, you know, <laughs> what I find amazing about this is that, you know, to be a philosophy nerd for a second, like, pain is what philosophers call incorrigible, right? You don't doubt that you're feeling pain when you feel pain. You know, when Wittgenstein says, like, here's how you know you believe other people have minds, right? He says that's a, a non-problem. That's the kind of idiotic thing only a philosopher would ever gin up. Try denying a person who is in pain is in pain when they're clearly in agony, right? You believe that a person is having that experience. So it's like the infallible testimonial of experience, right? And another person's experience is rooted in pain. And these women felt extreme pain. Their descriptions of what they were feeling, it sounds as though without anesthesia, someone is removing an internal organ, right? And they weren't believed. And it's not just that they weren't believed. They internalized that disbelief. And they they either kind of didn't believe that what they were feeling was um, unusual, um, or they felt like they deserved it as part of the kind of punishment for the sin of being unable to bear children. And Dana, I think you're absolutely right. It's so powerful. It's almost atoning for the first season of Serial, which was utterly brilliant, but it got taken to task for saying, oh, here's this exceptional miscarriage of justice, to which people said, no, this is all too typical. There's nothing exceptional about it at all. Wake the fuck up. This happens all the time. Someone gets railroaded for something they didn't do and goes to jail for life. And since then, the show has been really scrupulous about taking on systemic injustices and treating them from multiple perspectives. The trial portion of this show, Julia, is is very powerful in that it's so not vengeful. It's trying to understand what would constitute justice in this super complex situation. It's agnostic, but not at all cold. I mean, its powers of empathy are extraordinary. It's just that they extend in all directions. And at a certain moment, a judge has to render a verdict, right? It has no choice. And I just thought that that was beautifully done in addition to every other piece of this this podcast. Yeah. I mean, I had a similar response of like, wow, I don't know that I would have, you know, these women describe their experiences after the theft and substitutions are discovered of of feeling like both the Yale Clinic and others are raising questions about whether they've actually been harmed. Like, is the experience of undergoing excruciating pain for a while harm? What kind of harm is that? And I really appreciated the show for taking that pain seriously. I mean, the the mysteries of women's gynecological pain, even as a woman who has experienced some gynecological pain, it's like childbirth, the, 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 the notion that pain and motherhood are joined inextricably is, it's in our culture, it's in our nature, it's, it's you know, in some ways imposed by the patriarchy and in some way imposed by biology, right? And so the show is just so 
smart about this and so smart in what it puts in and what it leaves out. It's just masterful. I mean, it's really, of all the things we've consumed in a while, this is one I would recommend very, very highly in the quietness and certainty of its attention to female experience and to, and, and also in the understatedness, but laceratingness of its indictment. I mean, I do think if you listen to the whole thing, which I have, I very much doubt that these are the final episodes of this show because mm-hmm. the portrait yeah, it describes of Yale and Yale's um, desire for this to not be a story and refusal to reckon with what actually happened and for how long and what its culpability was um, you know, the show never hits it with a gong, but it's pretty fucking devastating and outrageous. And I I suspect we may hear more. Yeah, Julia, I hope that's the case, because like I say, I just keep being amazed at how much bigger this story keeps getting as a, you know, philosophical, moral, uh, legal puzzle than I thought it could have been from the initial description of the of the case as horrifying as the case itself is so yeah i really hope that that susan burton weighs in as yale continues to respond to to this story all right the podcast is called the retrievals we loved it if that's the right word it's very powerful you should check it out and let us know what you thought all right let's move on we've gathered here today to raise a glass to hip-hop it's 50 baby so writes wesley morris in the new york times he goes on to say half a century of effrontery dexterity elasticity rambunctiousness ridiculousness bleakness spunk swagger juice jiggle and wit of defiant arrogance devastating humor consumptive lust and violent distress of innovation danger doubt and drip we're joined by wesley he is the critic at large of the new york times Wesley Morris, welcome back to the show. It's been way too long. I know. But, you know, loving you from afar. Back at ya. <laughs> Great to have you back. And congratulations on um, how hip-hop conquered the world. It is a Wesley Morris uh, tour de force. It's really, it is a tremendous piece, and it's great Thank to you. have you on to talk about it. I This probably doesn't need to be gone over for the millionth time, but very quickly, like you acknowledge in the piece quite openly your ambivalence about celebrating this anniversary, in no small part because it's somewhat arbitrary. Just tell us briefly what it's the anniversary of, and then go on and maybe talk about how you conquered or how hip-hop and the celebration of the anniversary conquered your ambivalence. Basically, the event we are celebrating is the evening that DJ Kulherk took two versions of a record and basically created a seamless beat for all the people who were dancing at his parties to be able, like the B-boys and B-girls, basically. Loosely competitive dancers who'd come to these parties. Um, that happened in 1973, in the summer of 1973, in August of 1973, which is why if you you listeners are suddenly like, why is everybody suddenly aware of the fact that hip hop is 50, 50 right now? It's because uh, this month is the actual month in which that is said to have happened. Um, I mean, the event definitely happened. I guess the question is, what is hip hop and does the creation of that breakbeat, what I say in the piece is basically this big bang moment. Why Why is it that? Can you talk a little bit about that journey? I, I uh, as someone who, as an editor, has an aversion to anniversaries, 
uh, I loved that your lead reckoned with the arbitrariness of the anniversary and then explains how you kind of fell for the idea that it's worth seizing whatever moment we want to take a look at what hip hop has been and is. Yeah, I hadn't really thought about it at all, honestly, the, the anniversary part. And then the Grammys happened and Questlove assembled, you know, three dozen almost people or acts to be part of it. And there was something about the gathering of all these people and the idea that these people were willing to come to this show, perform under the rubric of hip hop being 50 years old and it's mattering um, in the way that it so evidently does, it really got to me. 50 years ago, a street princess was born to be an icon. The art form took the entire world by storm. How she doing? Her influence constantly raising the stakes each generation. Yeah, Wesley, because of you, I watched that entire Grammys performance on YouTube, that whole extended montage. And given especially the usual level of Grammy musical performances, right? I mean, Mm -hmm. there are a few Mm -hmm. legendary ones, but it's really a big opportunity for for cringe, right? Especially a montage where everybody just gets to do a brief bit of their song. Like if you you would say to me, right, history of rap told through a medley where everybody gets less than a minute to sing on the Grammys, I would think that just sounds unbearably reductionist and you know it's not going to give you any real sense of the sweep of history and it's going to be sort of an insult to each of those performers and none of those things were true at all because everybody up there just completely owned their moment and I'm thinking in particular of seeing Rakim come out and just oh completely God. own but as you mentioned we're, we're inundated right now with these history of of rap and you know these kind of chronologies of hip hop flooding the internet and something that really set yours apart I think was its its distinctive uh, resistance which Julia talked to in relation to you know just the resistance to the anniversary as a peg for a story but in addition to that in your lead you talk about resisting the idea of marking this anniversary in this way as as if it's a break, a big bang, because you see it as part of a continuum. You see hip hop and rap as being part of this continuum of American black music from, you know, ragtime to soul to funk to rock and roll. And that you also changed your thinking about that. And I wondered if you could just talk about that, you know, sort of Schrodinger's way of looking at rap (laughs) as part of a continuum, which it is, but also as something new and what it did bring that was new. I think what occurred to me when I was writing this was just, and I was thinking about like exactly how to feel about this art form, which is vast, right? I mean, the thing that that you really, it's impossible to take it all in now, right? It's as big as jazz. You could never get to the bottom of it. And I mean, it really is useful to go back to the beginning in a lot of ways and ask how we get from, you know, Grandmaster Flash and that crew... It's like a jungle sometimes. It makes me wonder how I keep from going under. To Travis Scott or Lil Baby. What is this art? And like, what does it mean that, we, that we've been on it? And what are all the, the different modes of expression in this one art form that, that we have? And any sort of sentient educated musically aware person culturally aware person can see that you know there's obviously some relationship between the spiritual and hip-hop between 
rock and roll and hip hop. I mean, the foundations of rap um, bring with it call and response. They bring with it this interest in guitar elements and drum elements and this very sort of straightforward, direct vocal cadence that harkens back to the 1940s and 50s, you know, jump blues and shout blues musicians. I mean, all of these things are in the music. And yet the thing like this big bang moment, it happens in the housing projects or it happens around public housing. A lot of the practitioners of this art form, whether we're talking about people who we would now call stylists, um, rappers, dancers, DJs, they lived in public housing. They didn't have any money. And part of the public housing they lived in in New York City during one of the darkest moments for New York um, in terms of, you know, financial resources, infrastructure, um, they were living apart from everybody else. This was housing that was essentially by nature anti-integrationist. It was segregatory. And that music comes out of this direness, not just for New York City at the time, but for black Americans in general. And this generation of kids, I mean, they would have been, and this is me sort of like somewhat scholastically extemporizing, but, you know, they would have been different from the Southern musicians who invented all the other musics, right? This is an entirely Northern phenomenon and it comes out of disillusionment this is the first American art form, first black American art form, but American art form, I would say, that comes out of a hopelessness, right? The music isn't hopeless. The music is strangely practical about the circumstances, but the circumstances that produce this universe, this galaxy of sound, comes out of despairing circumstances, so that, sorry, to answer your question, Dana, specifically, that makes it different from these other art forms. And so, yes, on a continuum, but no, also, it's its own thing in terms of the way this country has thought about young black people and the promises that it's made to, their, to them and their ancestors. Wesley, I wonder if you could speak to the fact that I think the first descriptor you apply to hip hop in your piece is effrontery. Yeah. <laughs> and you talk a little bit about the kind of attitudinal swagger of hip hop and particularly as compared to Motown. Um, and I'd be curious if you could talk a little bit about that, about kind of, of out of that environment you've just described of sort of hopelessness or, or but, but also arguably of um, the after of civil rights movement, like, okay, here we are after and still, <laughs> still this is how the world is. Mm-hmm, um, mm-hmm. Can you talk a little bit about that? That effrontery, what, your, your choice of that word and, and that riff that you go on in your piece. I mean, the, another thing, I didn't really get into this in the piece, but it's implied, I think. But this is the age of the super predator, right? This is the age of this sort of political, ideological, socio, I mean, I guess it's like <laughs> pseudo sociology that basically pathologizes and and turns into a societal threat, young black men in particular. And so the idea that like a huge part of this music is is young black people talking about how great they are, 
how nobody's better than them, how, you know, a huge part of the art form involves these people battling each other for lyrical and and stylistic supremacy on a microphone is just and to dress like you <laughs> like you own the world when you don't have two nickels to rub together. It just is so powerful to be. It's just you there's a world in which you 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 make music that meets the harshness of your circumstances and that's certainly in hip hop obviously. But the 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 way in which glamour and self-confidence and you know <laughs> swagger and self-belief are a part of the music too is just it's a radical act. <laughs> it's a radical anti it's not anti it's it's very social but it's sort of anti um stereotypical anti bureaucratic anti governmental and I'm I'm trying to arrive at the exact right thing this is in opposition to but basically the way this country has for so long thought or had for so long and still does more or less think of of young black people as being a scourge on this country and here they were to say <laughs> I know what you're talking about but I'm not trying to go there I'm the best and nobody's better than I am and I dare you to present somebody who can who can do a better job at this thing than I can and that just <laughs> that feels incredibly radical to me and it felt radical I remember feeling exhilarated as a kid discovering somebody like LL Cool J or Rakim who just in totally different styles told stories about what bad MFs they were and you could hear that in the, in the timbre of their voices and in the you know the production of their sound Wesley, towards the end of the piece, you say nobody thought it would last this long. I I remember even thinking at the time when I was in like eighth grade, and I think the Who had a song like "Long Live Rock" or "Rock and Roll Will Never Die." That's the moment you know it's about to die, and <laughs> you know it's like the sort of generative and self-generative powers of any art form, popular art forms especially. I think their their health tends to be a rude health, and it's mm. intact when a certain kind of nostalgic self-regard, you know, or institutional po-facedness hasn't kicked in yet. So here we are, we're at 50. I mean, the the celebration, as you say, has been exhilarating. Your piece is a fucking tour de force. Is there enough novelty and almost sort of like insecurity about its status to keep it energized going forward? That's a great question. Uh, I don't detect in, well, there might be insecurity, but it's not about the art form, right? I think that mm. one of the things that this, that hip hop is going through right now is, you know, if you think about all the other things that have happened in these 50 years involving, you know, <laughs> things you never thought would be possible, black president, the legalization of weed, um, the, the idea that this art form like manages to encapsulate that, um, I, I think that there is, there's like a lot of hope 
um, in these in these 50 years and beyond them. But I think this particular moment is really interesting. And one of the pieces in the issue that the, that the magazine put out um, by Nyila Orr is looking at a tiny bit of, of a thing that I looked at in my piece. But she does this amazing, you know, gender split where the boys are depressed and the girls are like loving the fuck out of life. And the the bounce, exuberance, nasty, dirty, filthy sexuality of it, the fun, all of that old energy has been genderized so that the women are carrying mm. the baton of the old school forward and the boys are all depressed. <laughs> and I think that heaviness is is like the uh, circle coming not to close but there's there's something on this arc that is reaching back into the past in a non-nostalgic kind of psychological um I want to I don't want to say trauma because that's a whole thing and you know, we could talk about that but there is that is in the music now and you can it's I mean it's trap music it's drill the na- the genre names themselves they don't make me want to go out and do anything fun. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I can't wait um, to join you in the trap. Exactly. Right. I mean, uh, it's just, it's really deep. It's really deep. But I think that, I don't know where the music goes from here, but I think that it is on, I mean, it hip hop is on its own continuum. And it's interesting to see um, that the sort of gender politics have flipped now where the women who previously were ignored, exploited, you know, misogynized have kind of taken the reins and are guiding this music to its future. Mm. All right, Wesley, take everything you've just said and everything you've written and felt and thought about hip hop and force it through the keyhole of the dumbest question, which is (laughs) dumbest ask, give us a cut to go out on. Well, you know, I mentioned two of my favorite karaoke uh, songs to do in like period. Uh, they're two of them are by rappers. One is "Paid in Full" by Eric B and Rakim, and the other is "Mama Said Knock You Out" by LL Cool J. Let's do "Paid in Full" by Eric B and Rakim. Thinking of a master plan. This ain't nothing but sweat inside my hand So I dig into my pocket, all my money spent So I just deep up, still coming up with Lent So I start my Perfect choice. Wesley Morris, the critic at large for the New York Times. Wesley, an immense pleasure always. Let's please do it again before too long. Yes, please. This is a hole up. Ain't nothing funny. Stop smiling. We still don't nothing move but the money. But now I learn to earn cause I'm righteous. I feel great. So maybe I might just search for a nine to five. If I strive, then maybe I stay alive. So I walk up the street whistling this, feeling out of place. Cause man, do I miss a pain. All right, now is the moment in our podcast we endorse. Dana, what uh, what do you have this week? Steve, my endorsement comes out of a discussion we had a few weeks ago on the show now. I have not stopped listening to Sinead O'Connor and going on deep dives of Sinead O'Connor since we talked about her the week after she died a few weeks ago. And uh, and I just keep finding deeper and deeper cuts that are really fascinating for different reasons and different periods of her career. She's just was such an extraordinary both singer and public figure. And I wound up making a playlist for my daughter of some songs that I thought she should hear. Basically, not a deep cuts playlist, but 
a almost a greatest hits one to get a young person who was totally unfamiliar with her work into her enough that hopefully my daughter who sings and writes songs sometimes herself will will start considering Sinead one of her influences. So far it's working. She has actually really liked what I've exposed her to. But in the process, I came across this concert doc that I had never seen and that I wish I had had seen in, in advance of our uh, our conversation a few weeks ago because it's great and it gives a good sense of who she was as a live performer at a very specific moment, 1990, which was, you know, the year she broke huge as a pop star, the year that Nothing Compares to You broke it number one on the on the charts. It's called The Year of the Horse, and it's a, a concert that was filmed in Brussels that's basically her singing that album, the album from 1990, I Do Not Want What I Haven't Got, along with a few things from her first album, and a couple of, you know, just protest songs and, and traditional Irish songs and the kind of thing that she often returned to later in her career. It's called The Year of the Horse, and yeah, it doesn't show all aspects of her as a performer because it's not a great concert documentary. It's really hard to make a great concert documentary, and this one sometimes cuts away when you don't want it to cut away. It doesn't really show the audience enough. It doesn't do things that to me make a concert documentary really stand out and not just feel like a music video. So at times it's a little bit of a deadening of what was clearly not at all a dead performance. And, you know, she does have the audience in the palm of her hand, but the, sh- the movie doesn't always show that in the best way. At any rate, it's a good starting place to see what Sinead was like as a performer, you know, at this, this moment of her height of pop stardom. The Year of the Horse, you can watch the entire thing on YouTube and it's just over an hour long. Ah, amazing. Um, Julia, what do you have? Uh, this is just a troll for you, Steve, but I would like to endorse fans of Taylor Swift. So I um, had the great fortune to have a friend have a ticket to Taylor Swift's final SoFi show last week here in LA, which was her final show of the first leg of her US tour. She has since announced new U.S. and North American tour dates for late 2024. So there's still time, Steve, for you to learn all the lyrics (laughs) and get on over there. Um, But it was this just like incredible vibe in the stadium, this just collection of women and some men of all ages and body types, but not as wide a range of susceptibility to wearing fringe or sequins, which were more universal than anything else. Um, I don't know, man. It was a good vibe in that stadium. And the the, the single best moment, uh, people were very kind. The friendship bracelet trading was real. People were giving friendship bracelets to the hot dog vendors. It was, it was a really kind and pleasant vibe and a fun vibe and fun to see how her... Um, uh, her her just skills as a live performer. Um, but the single best moment of the night was walking out in a crowd of people and uh, most people were still getting to their cars or their rides. Um, and my friend and I had stopped and were, were uh, these, these like 11 year old girls had asked us if we would trade a final friendship bracelet with them. So we were doing that and their mom or aunt or somebody was taking pictures. And then a car drove by also from a concert goer maybe who had um, uh, like gotten to their car sooner than the rest of us. And they rolled down their windows and they yelled to all the women on the street, hi, Barbie. And then all the women on the street yelled back, hi, Barbie, hi, Barbie, <laughs> hi, Barbie, hi, Barbie. <laughs> and it was just so great. It was just like this extreme, um, extremely female environment that was really lovely. So uh, I endorse the fans of Taylor Swift and uh, getting Steve to 
the 2024 leg of the U.S. show. Let's make it happen. I love the Taylor Barbie crossover. That makes complete sense. <laughs> it's just very summer of 2023 that Eras tour and Barbie have this moment of convergence. You know, I mean, there was a great Michelle Goldberg essay about what the hell is going on with the Eras tour. Like, I don't know why it was. It felt like Woodstock or something. And and you know, she did release four albums that she didn't tour for, which is why she made the canny choice to frame this whole thing as a retrospective. Um, but sorry, Stephen, I didn't mean to cut you off. Well. You know, Julia, you and the universe seem to live for trolling me because the rumor broke a couple of days ago that Taylor Swift is buying a house in um, my old town, upstate. <laughs> but I, I suspect that that's an idle rumor. But I'm actually going up there later today to to, to sleuth it out. So I'll report back. But um, that, that's the intent of your trip. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So get my bail money ready. Um, but anyway, so I, uh, I, this is unintentional, but I've come up with like the most like rockist, like, you know, R-O-C-K-I-S-T, like rock snob endorsement. I didn't really mean it, but it was occasioned by um, my daughter turning to me and saying, you know, that song, Jersey Girl, that that's real. That gives, I think she said, or whatever. It was whatever the slang phrase she used was and like my whole body filled with endorphins like I just finished the New York marathon in under four hours or something it was just a moment of complete like dad you know harmonic rapture or something um, because Tom Waits is one of the toughest cells you can make to a teenage girl in 2023 um, and I've tried and I finally had my in because Phoebe Bridger's clearly venerates Tom Waits, having covered him now, I think at least twice uh, on disc and, and multiple times, you know, multiple songs, multiple times live. But I said, okay, listen, I, here's what I, you gave me the opening. I'm so sorry. I'm going to like crawl through it. I'm going to make you a, a playlist of like, you know, a decorous, you know, 12 song, tw Tom Waits songs. But it gave me an excuse to go back and just Tom Waits. I understand people, like Tom Waits or they respect Tom Waits or they, you know, or they have a kind of skin reaction to his voice and his persona, which is incredibly powerfully delivered, right? It's, it's, you do tend to go either with it or against it in the instant and then continue on that path. Um, he is such an extraordinary songwriter. I, I'm, I just, I'm endorsing my own Tom Waits playlist with the title broken bicycles, which is a Tom Waits song. Um, which is on Spotify and I'm going to link to it. But to the extent that I just attempted to make a case for this guy's songwriting ability, you know, going all the way back to like, you know, old 55, which was a huge hit for the Eagles. I mean, it's just ability to write a pop melody. I think it's lost in all of the, you know, wild affectation, which I love and is not for everybody. So I think he's one of the enduring, like, you know, American songbook geniuses in addition to this incredible shtick that he's, 
um, cultivated, which I find winsome and quite daring in its way. So I'm just endorsing. It's like the sky is blue. Love the TV show Cheers. Um, and uh, you can freeze your bread right up there. I am endorsing Tom Waits. All right. I want to hear this playlist. Um, you know, I heard that Taylor Swift and Tom Waits are actually working on a duets <laughs> album. God, the it's just like the the sheer malevolence of that speaks more to your soul than the state of mind. Julia. Honestly, it's not malevolence. It's just that for all that you often pretend to be wrong, you're not often super wrong. And just truly, like the the experience I had at the Taylor show, the other thing that was most similar to this, and you're going to laugh at this hyperbole, but like, it's truly not. The other concert going experience it was similar to was when I went and saw Paul McCartney at Dodger Stadium. And like, every fucking song was a hit and a banger and you were like how does he have more and then there just kept being more but that was a retrospective of like a 50 plus year career that included being in the fucking Beatles and several <laughs> other amazing bands and her you know she's not Paul McCartney yet but like her 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 ability to write a really fucking great song was on rampant display um and someday you'll fess up properly that you were wrong. And I, I await that moment and uh, it's going to be great. Nobody is better at being Taylor Swift than Taylor Swift. I'll give you that. And Paul McCartney, that's a good comp. Don't like him either. <laughs> <laughs> Thanks, Julia. Thank you. Dana, as always, a huge pleasure. Thank you so much. Thanks to you. You'll find links to some of the things we talked about today at our show page. That's slate.com slash culturefest. And you can email us at culturefest at slate.com. Our introductory music is written by Nicholas Bertel. Our production assistant is Kat Hong. Our producer is Cameron Drews. For Dana Stevens and Julia Turner and the wonderful Wesley Morris, I'm Stephen Metcalf. Thank you so much for joining us. We will see you soon. Thank you.